Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Uh, we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of John, and last week we looked at the story of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Uh, and this is a story that's a fairly familiar story if you're familiar with the Bible. Some of you are like, man, that sounds like an awesome party that I would want to go to if you're not familiar with the Bible. Um, but this section of John has been described as the book of signs. Uh, chapters 2 through 12 describe all these different symbols and pictures that Jesus demonstrates through signs and miracles that point to a greater reality, his greater work to save. And John makes the point at the end of his gospel that the reason he wrote all of these things, the reason he included these things, was so that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God and that you would believe in him. And so all of these are meant to point us to Jesus, something about what he's doing, something about what he's done that's going to help us believe. And so last week, the story of turning water into wine it's a pretty lighthearted story. We like this story. Like, that sounds like a lot of fun. That's my kind of wedding. Um, it sounds joyful. I can get on board with this kind of Jesus. Uh, but today, the story we're going to look at is going to seem a little bit different. So it hit us a little bit different. Um, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, even the beginning of the 2000s, there were these things called power ballads. Now, anyone under the age of like 20, let me, let me, let me work with you here for a minute. A power ballad uh, was a song sung by a rock band or a really heavy band that was to show their, their softer side, their emotional side. And it was a love song. It was this really soft song. So imagine that you'd only heard the power ballad, the, the soft love song, and then you buy the entire album and you're like, this is a little aggressive. Okay, that's what's going on here this morning. We look at the story of Jesus and the water being turned into wine, and we're like, man, this seems really easy for me to accept, but what about all this other stuff about turning over tables and creating a whip and driving people out of a temple? And just like you couldn't say, I'm a fan of this band by just liking the power ballad, you can't say you're a fan of Jesus if you just like the story about him turning water into wine. You can't just like the wine-giving, joy-filled Jesus and ignore the one who is bent on God's holiness. Tim Keller describes this like driving down a road, and as you're driving down the road, uh, you're this winding road, there's a giant tree that has fallen in the middle of the road. Now, you have to deal with the giant tree. You can't just ignore the tree and say, well, I just, I'm going to believe that the tree doesn't exist, and I'm just going to keep going down this road, because it, you're just going to run into the tree at your own peril. And so we need to unpack and understand what Jesus is trying to get us to understand here as he cleanses the temple. So just a little bit of backstory, if you, if you look at verse 13, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, the Passover was the biggest Jewish festival that happened every year in late March or early April. And it was a celebration of what God had done in the book of Exodus as he took his Hebrew people out of Egypt, a literal exodus to, to free them from slavery and take them to the promised land. And so what happened is God came to Moses and he told him, he said, I want you to take for every family to take a, a lamb, slaughter it, cover the doorway with its blood so that the angel of death will pass over your family and protect them. 
And so every year they recreated this, they recapitulated the story, and they sacrificed an animal as a picture of God's faithfulness to save them out of Egypt. And so every year they would do this, and it says at the end of verse 13 that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. At the end of the last passage, he had gone down to Capernaum, and they had been preparing to go to uh, the, the Passover. And he had to go up to Jerusalem because it was up on a mountain, and it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is a big celebration. This is something that took a lot of forethought. This is something that for weeks and months leading up to the event, there would have been all sorts of preparation and you have been talking about it and putting logistics together of how are we gonna get our entire family to Jerusalem for this giant festival. And we see this swelling of a po- the population in Jerusalem. On off-peak seasons, there was about 80,000 people in the city of Jerusalem, but during the Passover, it was somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people. This is like the big move on steroids. Everybody is flooding in with all of their animals. They're making sacrifices. It was an utter mess. It took a lot of coordination. And in verse 14, we see that in the temple, he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So Jesus goes to the temple where the Passover sacrifice would be made, and he finds all of these animals, he finds money changers, and this is an odd scene for us, but on one hand, this is very practical. They, you see hundreds of thousands of people who are traveling for hundreds of miles from all over Israel coming to make sacrifices, and they actually talk about the scene you would have seen coming out of the temple. You actually would have seen blood flowing into the streets out of the temple. That's how much sacrifice was going on. So you can imagine if you and your entire family and hundreds of thousands of other families have to get your animals to the Passover and get them to the temple, that's a lot of work to get your animal all the way there. So what they began to do is they began to sell animals for sacrifice. And then also there was a certain money you had to pay at the temple for your offering. It was called Tyrian silver. It was a high quality silver. Now, these things on the surface are not a big deal. This is actually being practical. You're helping people uh, uh, make this more convenient. The problem was that they had moved these enterprises into the temple. Instead of doing it outside the temple, which they had done for years, they actually, over in the Kidron Valley, which is a few miles away from Jerusalem, they would set up shop and set up animals, and you could buy your animal and exchange your coins. They had taken this and moved it into the temple courts, They had chosen convenience over the sacredness of God's house. When it came to the money and the exchange rate, there is some evidence that there may have been targeting of the poor. The exchange rate may have made it really difficult for them. And so verse 15, Jesus is having none of this. He says, in making a whip of cords. Now, uh, Jesus made a whip. He didn't bring a whip with him. He just found materials in the temple and made a whip. Can you imagine being a passerby and Jesus is just standing there and he's braiding some, some leather together and you're like, hey, Jesus, what are you doing? He's like, y'all are about to find out. And uh, he, he stops, he weaves together this whip and starts driving the sellers and the animals out of the temple. Starts driving them out. It says in verse 15, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Why does Jesus do this? Now, I do think we need to have a little aside about anger. A lot of times we love this story, especially if you're an angry person. You're like, oh man, Jesus turned over tables and he got angry. A few things. Number one, you're not Jesus. He's God, okay? Um, And our, our anger is never perfectly righteous. 
In fact, the scriptures tell us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so we need, if you're an angry person, you struggle with anger, this is not a story telling you to start going flipping tables over in your mother-in-law's living room. Okay, don't do that. What is Jesus so concerned about? It seems a bit extreme to us, but he's not so much concerned about the activity, but about the attitude. It says in verse 16, uh, he says, he said, he said to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. You've taken the focus of this place, which is intended to be for the worship of God, and you have made it for greed and power and money. And in verse 17, his disciples, who would have been good Jewish students of the law, understood that Jesus was doing something the Messiah would do. Verse 17, zeal for your house will consuming. They're quoting Psalm 69, 9, where it was said that the Messiah would come with such passion and care for the holiness of God, for the holiness of the house of God, that it would consume everything he did. And it shows us that Jesus came not to just clear the temple, but to cleanse the temple, to make the temple new. He wanted God's house to be holy. He wanted to remove everything that took away attention from God alone. He wanted to take away everything that made God's name small. He wanted to take everything that was impure. It had to go. And so the question is, is what is holiness? What is the holiness of God? Firstly, holiness is not something God is. God is holy. God himself is holy. Holy. It's not just what he's like. It is who he is. And this means that God is the standard of everything that is true, beautiful, and good. He is the standard of holiness. He's the standard of truth. When we think about God and his word, it, it communicates who God is and what God has done, and that we can trust God and we believe that the truth that flows from the very person of who God is is for our good, for our flourishing, and we can trust that as the standard of truth. He's not only the standard of truth, he's the standard of beauty. It's amazing how the Bible describes holy things in the Old Testament as beautiful. All the things in the Old Testament temple and the Old Testament tabernacle were described in this ornate detail because they were holy and set aside for God. Even the way God is described in Psalm 50, verse 2, out of Zion, the, perfect, perf- the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He's the standard of beauty. He's also the standard of goodness. All that God calls good is declared good. It's created with a purpose. If you look at Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, every day of creation at the end of the day is said, God declared it good. And when he, declared, when he made people, it said he declared them very good, that we have a purpose, and God defines what goodness is. His holiness also means that he's separate. Holiness literally means other or, or set apart, and that God is so far beyond our categories of beauty and goodness and truth that there is no comparison. It's like kindergartners trying to paint the Mona Lisa with their opposite hand. Like that, that's the picture of us trying to look like God. One of the, and, and whenever I try to paint something, it does look like a kindergartner painted with their opposite hand. Um, one of the biggest fights I got into in my marriage was my wife and I were, it was for her birthday. And I said, hey, I, she's very artistic. She'd never let you know that. But I said, hey, I, I want to, well, let's paint together. I'm going to paint some pictures together. And like, I'm trying, okay? Like, I'm really trying. So I pick like this picture of like a, 
like a bear, clown, pig or something. It seems like something you can't really mess up. I messed it up. And I'm painting this. And she said, did you even try? I was super offended because I really tried. In the same way, no matter how hard we try, we cannot come up to the picture of, of God's holiness. He's so separate. But also his holiness is sweeping. It's comprehensive. It's everything about God that is holy. That God's holiness is not separated from his other attributes. That God is holy in his love. He's holy in his justice. He's holy in his mercy. He's holy in his wrath. And so when you see this picture of the holiness of God, do you not understand why it's such a big deal that Jesus would want the temple to be a place of holiness? God is holy and he deserves our worship. And to make light of the place that he's supposed to be worshiped is an offense against God. But the reality is, is that we do the same thing in our lives. We are called to be holy before God. You and I are called to be holy and set apart. And this is what that means in the Old Testament where it described holiness was this picture of an item or a person being set aside for a particular use. So an, a utensil or an object would have been considered holy because it was set aside to be used by God for God. And to use it for any other purpose was to defile that object. It'd be like taking a cutting board that's made for just vegetables and then taking a big piece of raw chicken and sticking it right on top of it. I heard a, I heard a kind of an ooh pop it. It's gross, I agree. We're supposed, you and I are supposed to be set aside for God, which means that we have one focus and one aim, and that's to make much of God for his glory. Jackie Hill Perry says that being holy is to behold, to set our sights on a higher love, that we'd fix our eyes on God alone. But so easily we let our eyes wander away from the beauty of God to lesser things. And so I want to just unpack the effect that happens when we don't see the holiness of God. Here's what happens when you don't see the holiness of God. I borrowed these categories from Caroline Cobb. Uh, There's some, some incredible ways to frame this out. She says that when we don't see the holiness of God, it tarnishes our witness. This impacted how others saw God's people and ultimately how they thought about God. They're, they're, they're thinking, if, if you treat God this small, then what kind of God do you serve? Christians are called to represent God in the world. And I'm not saying we represent God perfectly. I'm, I'm chief among sinners. I mess up all the time. But the way that we represent God is not by our moral perfection, but by showing how needy we are of his grace. We, we do this and we, and we have a witness before others. This is why we repent and remember the gospel. But those who know God, our lives should look different. Your life should look different in the workplace. It's not simply about climbing the corporate ladder or getting to a certain, or being liked by your, by your coworkers. It's about how do I honor God and love my neighbor? We should look different. And they were called to look different toward the Gentiles. They tarnished their witness toward their Gentile neighbors. Now to understand the temple, you need to understand the whole temple complex. And the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And this was the place that only the high priest could go and make a sacrifice. So they would one by one, send the animals in there, and they would make the sacrifices. Outside of that was the temple, was the court for men, for all Jewish men, and then the court for all Jewish women. And then outside that court was the court of Gentiles. 
This is where anyone from anywhere could come. And there is this storyline through the Bible of those who were outside of God's people being brought into God's people. These were people who were seeking after God. And where this took place, where the money changers and all the animals were being sold was in the the court of the Gentiles. In other words, not only can you not get all the way in to be near God, but we're going to take up the only space you're welcome here. We're going to take your space too. And it communicates that we don't take God very seriously because we don't think that you're welcome. Uh, I, I got to visit Westminster Abbey in London back in March, and it's an absolutely stunning building. But here's what really threw me off is that it's a tourist attraction at this point. Most of the year, it's just a tourist attraction. And there are people going in and out with cameras, laughing, talking, and you see all these beautiful pictures and this beautiful stained glass and this place that was intended to be a place of worship that is now being turned, turned into a tourist attraction. It's, it's really off-putting. And so two questions we have to ask about our witness is, number one, is, is the way that I'm beholding God showing God is big enough to demand change in your life? Is he big enough to demand that I repent and, and turn away from things? Is he big enough to, to challenge me on things that I hold dear? And then secondly, is the way that you behold God making space to welcome those who are searching? We enter into God's presence as people who understand we only do so by grace. So it tarnished their witness toward Gentiles, but also tarnished their witness toward the poor. There is some who believe that this was an unjust system with unfair exchange rates, but even if it wasn't that, temple worship had ultimately become about status. It had become about showing how much money you could give. It had become a fashion show where you would go in in the finest clothing and show that you were there to worship God. And there's a story in Luke where Jesus honors the widow and her offering because in the temple, there was a big copper offering box dead right as you walked in. And what a rich person would often do is they would take their money, it was coins back then, and they would drop their money in there as loudly as possible to make this loud clang. And when it did, every house, every head in the house turned around to say, who made that offering? Now, when the widow took her little coin, her little mite, and dropped it in that copper box, what kind of sound do you think it made? A little ting. It was was shameful. Other people would look at that and shame her. And Jesus says, it's not the amount, it's the heart that matters. Through our lives, as we live, do we, we live to make ourselves look good or do we live to show that God is holy and big and worthy? And this leads to the second effect of not seeing the holiness of God is it leads to hollow worship. Verse 16, again, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Holiness had given way to pragmatism. They had given themselves to what was easiest and most efficient and most convenient. We're just going to move the animals in and move the money changers in to get them a little bit closer, to just make it easier. But when we focus more on ease and convenience than we do the holiness and the worthiness of God, we end up making our worship hollow. When we avoid certain biblical topics, and listen, this is not one that's real popular. It's one I love to just skip over we give in to pragmatism instead of holiness. There's a lot of cool things we could do and innovate with as a church, but we want to pursue God's holiness. And this even speaks to the way that you and I engage. The easiest thing for us to do would just be to go to the most convenient place to get up on Sunday morning, 
turn a worship service on on our phone and just watch from. And if you're watching from home, this is no indictment. We just hope you come at some point. Um, that's the easiest thing to do. The easiest thing to do would not be in a community group with other people. The easiest thing to do would just listen to professionally produced worship music on our own. That's the most convenient thing to do. But I'm just going to tell you, it's also hollow. And it misses the beauty of what God wants to do through the local church. Hollow worship allows us to just simply go through the motions. It becomes road. It becomes formula. I worked at Starbucks many years ago, which is not real coffee. I don't care what you say. It's not real coffee. So I, wake, I had to wake up at like 4.30 in the morning to go to Starbucks. And Starbucks, everything is pre-produced, pre-packaged, pre-managed. I could probably to this day make you a latte in my sleep. Like there's a very particular process about when you pull the shots, when you steam the milk, when you do the pumps. I mean, everything is down to about 23 seconds. That's an exact number. They want the drink made in 23 seconds. I could do that in my sleep without caring about whether you're there or not. In the same way, we can enter into worship with such rote formula that we miss the heart behind it. Caroline Cobb says that the cleansing of the temple was an indictment of empty religious activity, lip service, and fruitless ritual. And what would happen, you can imagine the scene as they were going into the temple, is it's utter chaos. There's animals being sold everywhere. And they would just go in, I'm going to make my sacrifice, I'm going to do my thing, I'm going to be seen, and I'm going to get out, I'm going to be eating at the restaurant by 11 a.m. It's easy for us to come to God with a heart far from Him. And this is why Jesus said and quoted the Old Testament in Matthew 15, when He said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what's the remedy for, for hollow worship? It's wholehearted worship. Now, I'm not just talking about emotions. Emotions are good. But sometimes we come to God and we're numb. Sometimes we come to God and we're struggling. Sometimes we're coming to God and I I don't have the words to sing or say, Lord. But bringing our whole self to God may mean bringing your emotions. It may mean bringing your, your joy. It may be singing out of your sorrow. It may mean coming weary before God and saying, I've got nothing to give. It may be bringing the mess of your week where you feel like you failed again and again and again and just saying, God, here it is. It's engaging with your heart, with your head, with your hands. It's saying, God, here I am. here's all of me. I, I, I submit my beliefs to you. I, got here, I, I come to you open-handed, believing that you will speak to me. We need to enter with wholehearted worship. But when we don't see the holiness of God, we also enter with the wrong why. Now, here's a question. You don't have to answer this out loud, and it's not a trick question. Why do you come to church? Why do you come to worship on a Sunday morning? Now, if, if you come here to, to prove yourself or to like, you know, go, okay, God, it's like, like God's in heaven with some sort of clipboard taking attendance, and if you come 73% of the time, you don't go to hell, like, that's the wrong reason to come to church. If you're coming to church to, to do good or to impress God, you're missing something vital because you can't impress God. You, you can't impress Him. One of the coolest things I've gotten to do over the last few years <clears throat> is serve in a ministry called Baseball Chapel. And I get to meet baseball players, and this is really cool because I love baseball, loved it growing up. Um, so one of the guys I've gotten to know over the years is a guy named Nate Baldy. 
Nate just pitched game five of the World Series. Um, he pitched six scoreless innings. We've become friends. And I just texted, hey, man, congratulations. Great job. Listen, if I start trying to send Nate Evaldi my slow-pitch softball highlights, that's not going to impress him. He's not going to be all that impressed by my, my double that I had to leg out at 41. He's not going to be impressed with that because he plays Major League Baseball. In the same way, God is not impressed by anything we bring to the table. So everything we get, the reason we gather is grace. And it's an invitation to simply come and rest in the goodness of God. It's about what's been done for you, not what you can do. And it's all about Jesus. And the reason we gather together is because of what God has done for us through Christ. And what happens, and this is what we often do, is we forget whose house it is which means you're an invited guest by God to enjoy his blessings. D.A. Carson says it was a prophetic invitation to worship God from the heart without clamor or distracting influences. When you see that Jesus is holy, you see that it's all about him. Now, with the time we have left, I want to give you a positive vision for what beholding God's holiness can do for you. So what changes when you see God is holy? First of all, you direct your eyes to a person, not a place. You you direct your eyes to a person, not a place. Verse 18, we see that the Jewish authorities, and these would have been temple authorities who were kind of there to keep order in the temple. They want to know what's going on with Jesus. This has caused an uproar. And we see here, though, that their concern is not so much about what Jesus did, but whether he had the authority to do it. I saw a video the other day where this soccer fan was dressed in a full soccer kit, and he runs out onto the field as the other team scores a goal, and he's celebrating with the other team. And everybody's like high-fiving him and all this, until finally somebody realizes, wait a minute, this guy's not a player. He's just a fan. They want to know, is Jesus just a fan or is he the Messiah who has the authority to do this? And instead of taking Jesus at his word and what he did, they demand another sign. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, this isn't genuine curiosity. This is moving the down markers a little further down the field. What Jesus had already done was a sign. They're like, Jesus, we need another sign. We need you to prove yourself then we'll believe you. But the reality is that they were not ready to consider Jesus. And and if you come to Jesus that way, say this morning you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you come to God waiting for him to do something for you other than what he's already done for you through the cross, you're going to have a very difficult time believing. Because if you say, God, I'll believe in you if you give me a family, or God, I'll believe in you if you work out this job situation. God, I'll, I'll trust you if you heal me of this. Then what you're actually revealing is that thing is your God and Jesus is a means to that thing. Jesus was not the means for them to get political power. Jesus is the means and the end. And Jesus answers by drawing all eyes to himself. Verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. On one hand, he's saying, you already have by the way that you've worshipped here. You've already destroyed the temple. You've already destroyed it with your greed and your your convenience. And, And in fact, later on in 70 AD, the temple is going to be destroyed. They look at Jesus, they're like, you're crazy. Verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But verse 21, we see that's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. In verse 22, his disciples remember this. They remember that he said that he would, uh, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What Jesus is saying is it's not about a temple. It's not about a place. It's about a person. Jesus is saying, I am the temple. I am the place where you meet God. I am holiness. I am how your sins are forgiven once and for all. I am, as 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, the Passover lamb who has been sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. You need to come to a person, not to a place. Jesus is the better high priest who makes you right with God. Hebrews 9 but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this, crea- of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And here's what this means for us. It means this morning that you can draw unto God, not because of this room, that this sanctuary with stained glass is not the primary way that you come to know Jesus. You come to know Jesus because he came and he gave his life for you and he rose again. And that when the the gospel is preached, when the word is preached, the spirit is there and God is among us. It means that you can be made holy by drawing near to Jesus and that every area of your life can be made right. Secondly, when you see that God is holy, you see that you need to be cleansed. Jesus didn't just come to cleanse the temple, he came to cleanse your heart. He came to make you clean. In Malachi chapter 3, there's this picture of the Messiah who would come, and he's described as bringing a refiner's fire and fuller's soap, which is, is actually more like acid. It was to burn away everything that's impure. Now, when you think of a goldsmith or a silversmith, when they purify gold or purify silver, are they trying to hurt the gold or the silver? No. They're trying to make it gleam as bright as possible. In the same way, what Jesus wants to do is present you as holy before God because he loves you. You see that you need to be cleansed. And then lastly, you tear down your temple. What's interesting about this is that Jesus didn't say that he will tear down the temple, which is one of the things he was falsely accused of at his his trial. He says, you tear down this temple, that you is silent, you know, destroy. You destroy this temple. And, and they responded, it's going to take 46 years. It took 46 years to build this thing. You're going to rebuild it in three days? That's impossible. Exactly. What Jesus does can only be done if he's God and he has the power to do so. What he's saying is don't trust in something lesser than what God can do. He's saying that old temple that you trusted in is what you think is going to get you close to God. They believed that they just went to the temple and they just made enough sacrifices. They could be made right with God. This is where my life matters. This is what I need to do to get close to him. But if this is what you're doing to get close to God, you're never going to get there. Your temple 
is whatever you go to in order to be made right with God. For you, that might be being a moral person. You follow all the rules. You check all the boxes. You show up on time. You've made your own set of rules. It's what you look to to feel enough, what you look to to matter, what you look to to feel love. But here's what's actually fascinating. At this time, the temple wasn't even complete. The temple was still under construction. And it took another 30 years to finish this temple. In other words, that thing you look to in order to be right with God isn't even complete. It fails. It falters. And what Jesus wants you to see is that he is the true temple whose work is finished and is the only way to be made right with God. And you have to look at him alone to be holy. Jesus was so consumed with zeal for the house of God that it consumed him unto death. Jesus died so that you and I could be presented holy and be the dwelling place of God. Let's pray.